Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. I'm your host, Todd Curtis. On March 6, 2015, I had a conversation with Charles Adler of radio station CGOB of Winnipeg, Canada, and we discussed a number of issues, starting with the upcoming anniversary of the loss of Malaysian Airlines flight MH370. We then talked about two events that happened on March 5th, a runway excursion involving a Delta Airlines MD-88 at LaGuardia Airport in New York, and a crash at the Santa Monica Airport in California of an aircraft flown by actor Harrison Ford. Is there anything we know today that we didn't know the last time you and I chatted about the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? Well, the one thing we do know, by the way, thanks again for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be with you there in Winnipeg. Uh, The one thing we do know today that we didn't know a few months ago is that there is a search underway under a very specific area of the ocean, and they're about 40% through with that search. And still, in spite of the fact they've brought higher technology to bear on this situation, still there's no trace of the aircraft. And there's even discussions in some quarters as to whether or not there should be a decision made to stop this search at some point. Now, I don't generally ask you to talk to me about how the, the families feel about this, but for any of us who who think about this, it's almost impossible uh, to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who has no idea where their loved ones are a year later. And it's not enough to say to people, well, we know they're, they're gone. Uh, that, that, that's something uh, that if you are absolutely, you know, nothing but, but ice cold uh, water running in your veins, you can handle uh, you know, we talked about uh, Leonard Nimoy and the character he played, uh, you know, the the Vulcan, or at least he was half Vulcan. If you're a Vulcan, you can deal with that. But if you're a human being, Todd Curtis, I just want you to express yourself right now, not as an aviation expert, but as a human being. Can you imagine uh, how you would feel if your loved ones were missing, quote, missing, unquote, for a year? I couldn't even begin to imagine that. Uh, even having a loved one out of touch for half a day when I don't know where they are can be nerve-wracking. And the one thing that came to mind while you were, you were just talking about that was that although MH370 has brought into focus the issue of the loved ones and their, their lost family members and friends, it also brings in my mind the fact that this is not a rare occurrence. As we speak in Canada, U.S., around the world, there are thousands of people who have had loved ones who disappeared, uh, runaway teenagers, uh, fathers who wander away and don't come back, mothers who do the same, uh, people during wartime lost at sea, as well as folks who might be lost uh, through the course of their work. Uh, they could be forest rangers. They could be in any number of walks of life where they're gone. There's no evidence. And the families are left wondering, what happened? And will, will I ever see my loved ones again? Well, it's the most painful thing, you know, you just mentioned a few moments ago that uh, the world we live in now because of our devices, our so-called smartphones, if someone's out of touch for half a day, that feels like a long time. There are people who stay in touch every half hour, whether it's, um, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, uh, kids, employees. I mean, we are in touch with each other. We're connected uh, 24-7, so to be completely disconnected uh, for a year, despite uh, despite what I think everyone firmly believes, I don't think anybody believes that their loved ones are on some deserted island. But but who knows where the imagination goes? You want the C word. You want closure. And what you just mentioned, the fact that in this day and age, we're used to being in more constant touch with one another. That feeds into what the society considers to be an acceptable situation. Uh, certainly with MH370, the fact that the aircraft not only is missing, but that aircraft routinely fly over oceans 
with no official requirement to be in touch with land has gotten to the point where the ICAO has come together. They had a recent meeting where one of the recommendations coming out of that is that the civil aviation authorities of the world have a new standard that through technology, procedures, what have you, that aircraft, wherever they're flying, should be in touch with their location at least once every 15 minutes. Now, if it weren't for MH370, this uh, requirement probably would have come up over time. But what happened last year has brought into focus the fact that we have the technology, we have the capability to be in near constant touch with every airplane on Earth. Why not make that a requirement so that the kind of tragedy we have from MH370 would be alleviated somewhat by at least knowing where the aircraft was so the search would be much shorter. Todd, before we move on to what happened at uh, LaGuardia where the plane went right off uh, the runway and fortunately, fortunately, uh, did not end up in the water. Uh, before we do that, uh, let me just ask you, is there any one theory, one overriding theory uh, that really meshes with your big brain as to what happened to MH370? Uh, to this day, I don't have one theory. I still have a combination, essentially, of four theories, uh, several of which might have operated at the same time. Uh, that being, there was some sort of deliberate action by someone who was an insider, be it a flight crew member, cabin crew member, aircraft executive, what have you, to somehow or another put that aircraft off course. There could have been a deliberate action from an outsider, a traditional hijacking. There might have been a, a one or more serious system failures where the flight crew and the cabin crew did extraordinary measures to keep the airplane in the air, but for whatever reason, led them off on the course that put them in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And the fourth thing, which is why I say it's probably a combination of things, somehow or another the flight crew was unwilling or unable to make any inputs to the aircraft. As a result, the aircraft automatically flew for uh, until the aircraft fuel ran out. So I don't think it's any one thing. I think it's several things that happened to the aircraft, and unfortunately we cannot unravel that until those black boxes are recovered, until the aircraft itself is recovered. We're talking to Todd Curtis, PhD, so we could call him doctor. He's a very casual guy, so we're not going to call him Dr. Curtis, but we could. Uh, airsafe.com is his site, uh, critical information for the traveling public. Todd, we were talking a few moments ago about how we're always in touch and we're used to people getting in touch now. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to have this on a podcast and it will be available to you and the rest of the world at some point this afternoon. It'll be on those SoundCloud uh, uh, podcasts for people who are, are wondering how to get uh, hold of those. Uh, lots of ways. Uh, CGOB.com slash uh, Charles Adler uh, will give you the most recent uh, podcast. You can also just uh, uh, Google Charles Adler and podcast uh, Charles Adler and Todd Curtis in this case, and uh, you will find audio. Uh, Todd, let's go to uh, New York now. Uh, give us your play-by-play, if you will, of what happened yesterday because... Uh, Everyone that I saw on that airplane get off, everyone I saw interviewed, uh, they were using words like miracle. They felt lucky to be alive. It was as close to a close call as it gets. Well, let's uh, take it through from the point after the airplane landed on the runway because it's unclear what happened before touchdown. Uh, clearly, the aircraft went off the side of the runway. And because LaGuardia is uh, a runway that's hemmed in by water on several sides and the runways themselves are shorter than with most major airports, uh, they were in a situation that was more dicey than you would see in most places. There was only a 
100 meters or so from the side of the runway to the berm that's by the, the water. And the aircraft actually went up against the berm, and the nose of the aircraft was hanging over it. Had that berm not been there, it's possible the aircraft could have gone into the water, and this would have been a much, much more difficult recovery situation than what you had. Now, why it veered off the runway could be a combination of a system failure on the aircraft, inputs to the pilots, whether uh, accidentally uh, putting in the wrong input or putting in the correct input, but for conditions that weren't anticipated. There could be environmental issues. Obviously, it was snowing there. And I also understand from the early reports there was actually a tailwind at landing, which is not outside of the realm of um, regulation. One can land with a certain amount of tailwind, but all things being equal, a pilot would rather have a headwind than a tailwind. There's also a bit of a crosswind component. So there were environmental challenges that would have made a somewhat unstable landing uh, more difficult to recover from. That's not saying it was an unstable landing, but one of the things that typically happens in a runway excursion event like this is that the approach speed or the approach angle was outside the norm and in such a way that it would have been more difficult to recover from a slick runway or from other problems. This was the Delta Airlines uh, flight to 1086 uh, from Atlanta landing on runway 13. For those people who are uh, superstitious, uh, there you have it. Uh, runway 13 skidding into a fence. At first, some people thought that uh, maybe it was the runway itself, uh, iciness. But you had several uh, airplanes reporting that just moments earlier they had landed on the same runway. What do you make of the ice on the runway component of the story? That, that part is something that's going to be obviously a focus of the NTSB investigation in that although the runway had been recently plowed, there's always a question of how much traction do you have on the runway? Uh, there are measurements made on a regular basis on as to the thickness of, let's say, the ice or slush on the runway and some assumptions made as to what this would mean for the ability of the aircraft to break on that runway. But it's always a question of is the information being given to the flight crew the correct information? And if they are given the correct information, did they use this information appropriately to configure the airplane for landing? And again, there's, there are several moving parts here, several issues with respect to procedures, as well as the capability of the aircraft, as well as the actions of the pilots, that collectively would lead either to a normal routine landing or what we saw yesterday, an excursion off the runway. Todd, uh, just before I let you go, uh, close call for Harrison Ford. What happened in Los Angeles? Well, from the early uh, indications, in part due to the air traffic control conversation uh, Ford had with um, the ground, there was an engine failure shortly after takeoff. And uh, Harrison Ford did exactly what a pilot should do, uh, immediately tried to return to the airport for landing. And seeing that it was uh, not a situation where he could have made it back to the runway, he put the airplane down in the safest place possible. And if one looks at an overhead picture of Santa Monica's airport, it's hemmed in by uh, an urban area. There are residential areas and light industrial areas all around the airport. And about the only open space there was a small nine-hole golf course just uh, off the end of uh, run runway three. And he did the right thing. He uh, executed uh, an emergency procedure navigated to a safe place, and landed the airplane. So, uh, I mean, he's 72 years old, but there are people who are in their 80s and even 90s who are flying. Uh, you would say, uh, Todd Curtis, as an aviation expert, uh, that uh, Harrison Ford, the age of 72, is a pretty astute flyer. 
Absolutely. And by the way, this is his third incident in, a, in, a, in an aircraft. He was in a helicopter crash in 1999 uh, where neither he or his instructor were injured. And also he was in a small beachcraft bonanza the following year in 2000 that ex had a runway excursion in, I believe it was Kansas. Uh, and, uh, and he had uh, in the Midwest of the U.S. He was uninjured there as well. By the way, here's an interesting fact I just found out today. The aircraft was originally manufactured in 1942. It was originally a military trainer. Harrison Ford was born in 1942, so you can draw whatever conclusion you can make from that. All right. Don Curtis, we, we love talking to you. Uh, we've been asking people who live in the eastern part of the continent just how cold is it, uh, because we're so proud of ourselves. We're like peacocks today because uh, temperatures are going to be above freezing this weekend. How cold is it in the Boston area right now? Well, unfortunately, at the moment, it's below freezing. It was about negative uh, 7 below, below Celsius when I woke up this morning. It's probably negative 2 or 3 right now, but it's sunny and blue, so I intend to go out and have a bit of a walk later. All right. Have, have a wonderful weekend, Todd. <laughs> Thank you. Todd, Todd Curtis, he's got a terrific site, airsafe, airsafe.com. For more information about the loss of Malaysia Airlines Flight MH370, please visit mh370.airsafe.com. For more information about the crash involving Harrison Ford, please visit celebrity.airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.